After the conference, we will begin a sermon series on the book of Acts. What we're doing uh, between now and then, as you know, is that we are connecting the dots between our last sermon series, which was the upper room, and uh, uh, the book of Acts, which begins with them back in the upper room, and asking what happened in that seven-week span that completely transformed the disciples into what we see uh, at the crucifixion, which is a failing, faltering, abandoning Jesus' disciples, and then what we see in Acts, which is setting the world on fire for the gospel of Christ. What happened to these apostles? What led to this uh, revival, resurgence, and formation of the early church? And just as a recap, Two weeks ago, we looked at the story of Peter. We looked at Peter's story between um, Christ's uh, death and Acts. Peter, obviously, is the major leader of the apostles in the book of Acts. And we saw how the grace of Jesus completely captured Peter and transformed this man into one who denied Christ to one who would eventually die for Christ. And we talked about how grace led to the book of Acts. Last week, for the like 300 people who made it to church, uh, uh, we, uh, we talked about Thomas. And hopefully if you weren't able to be there, you listened to that sermon. We talked about Thomas. And we talked about his story and his encounter with Jesus. And we talked about it was the truth of Jesus, the truth of the resurrection that led to the book of Acts. When you look at Jesus, he is described, his glory is described as full of grace and truth. And it, it was the, uh, it, it was the uh, fullness of that grace in Peter, the fullness of that truth in Thomas, that we see this glory, which then we led, is led to the book of Acts. This week, what we're going to look at is how Jesus wants us to respond to his grace and truth. In other words, if it is true that God is as gracious as we saw him with Peter... That his love is that excessive. That his forgiveness is that overwhelming. If it is true that he is so gracious, then the first question we should ask is, what is our response to that? And our response is always obedience. Likewise, if it is true that Jesus is true, if it is true that Jesus actually is risen from the dead, proving that he is actually the one true God, what is our response to that? Our response is obedience. We don't obey to get him to love us. He loves us, therefore we obey. We don't obey, obey hoping that he's true. He's true, therefore we obey. And so the response of grace and truth is very simple. I obey Jesus. I want to do what Jesus wants me to do. What does Jesus want me to do? What did Jesus want the apostles to do in response to his grace and his truth? That's what our passage is this morning. Very simply put, what led to Acts? What led to the formation of the church? What led to the gospel going forth? Very simple. Jesus told them to do it and they obeyed him. That's why I'm calling it Acts of Obedience. We're going to look at two things here in the Great Commission, which is obviously, which is how it's commonly referred to. 
I want us to consider the command of Jesus and then the strategy of Jesus. Now, let's look at the command. Verse 19. By the way, kids, your word is go this morning. I, I thought of that because that's, that's the command, go. So your word is go and Vern, you're our scorekeeper. Vern Kern, stand up Vern real quick. Vern Kern is the chairman of the Mercy Committee of TCPC. So when, when we give once a month to the Mercy Fund, he is the chairman of the committee. If there is anything going on in your life where you need help, or if there's anything going on in your life where friends of yours needs help, or if there's anything wrong whatsoever, talk to Vern. <laughs> He'll take care of it. Go is your word, Vern, and uh, keep track of that. And kids, that's your word, and then maybe ask... Why? Ask your parents, why do you think Pastor Robert chose that? The command, verse 19. Go. That's it. Go is the main imperative of the verse. The main command of the verse. Everything else we're going to look at is describing how we should go. But the foremost command is to Go. So, let's dwell here for a moment and think about the implications of just that one word, which is the command of the verse. What we need to understand is that the word go is an offensive word. Now, when I say offensive, I don't mean ugly or distasteful or mean, like I'm offended by that. I literally mean that it is offensive. It assumes that we are playing offense in this world, that we are going. When you imagine the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of this world, when you imagine the gospel's light versus sin's darkness, when you imagine God's redemption versus the world's fallenness, when you imagine these great conquests of history, here's the question I want to ask. Who's on offense and who's on defense? Who is advancing and who is resisting? How you answer that question says a lot about how you view the church and her calling in this world. What we see in the word go is that Jesus thinks we are on offense. But I think most of us Imagine that we are on defense. In other words, go is not the operative words in our the operative word in our mind. When we think about our disposition, it, it, it has words like this: defend, survive, endure, perhaps even retreat, hide, protect. But Christ's expectation is that we are on the move. We are on offense, that we go. General Mattis was once asked this question. Somebody, a, a reporter once asked him, you probably know more than anybody else in the world, you probably, outside the president himself, you probably know the dangers that are out there. You're let in on top secret information. You know how bad and scary it is and all that. And, th- and they said this, knowing everything you know, what is it that keeps you up at night? His answer was brilliant. Nothing. My job is to keep them up at night. I'm not trying to turn this into church militant thing, but you get the point. 
Do you understand the paradigm shift? It will dramatically change the way we conceive of our mission in this world. The powers of darkness, the forces of evil, the works of injustice should be terrified by the followers of Jesus Christ, not the other way around. We see this amazing statement. We're going to see this amazing statement in the book of Acts. When the movement spreads to Thessalonica and they drag some of these early believers before the city authorities. And here is the direct quote. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Does that sound like offense or defense to you? I love the statement, turn the world upside down. Because when you turn a fallen and rebellious world upside down, you're actually turning it right side up. To save that which is lost, to heal that which is broken, to oppose that which is evil, to make right that which is unjust, to turn upside down that which is upside down, is... What is all bound up in this word, go. So let me particularize things even more for us this morning. Let's bring it all the way down to our level. All forms of evil in the bluegrass should be very afraid of Taste Creek Presbyterian Church. When Christ says go, that should not be interpreted as everyone is supposed to go be a missionary to somewhere else. The point he is emphasizing is that our disposition toward the world is to go. That may mean he's calling you to go reach another nation, but it definitely means he is calling you to go reach the nation where he has you. So we are on offense Not defense here in the bluegrass. That which is dark, evil, harmful, sinful, unjust, unrighteous, that which is wrong within our beloved community should be terrified of TCPC, not the other way around. But how? How do we go? If we are on offense, in other words, what is our strategy? Now, that's where the details of the commission come in. We've seen the command. It's one word. You have to go. Now, let's look at the strategy. Verse 19. Go there, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's, that's it. That's the strategy. His grand plan to reclaim the world is to make disciples throughout the world. And make no mistake, that's not just save souls throughout the world. He intends for this to literally fix the world. Cultures, institutions, businesses, neighborhoods, marriages, families, lives. He owns it all, not just the souls who fill all of it. And his, his way of reclaiming all of it is disciples in and through all of it. Simply put, God's solution to the world's problems is Christian disciples. Now, if you find yourself 
skeptical about the power and effectiveness of such a strategy, then what that reflects is your shallow view of discipleship. In other words, if you hear that making disciples in all the nations is not truly able to fix or transform this world, that's probably because you view you have a very small view of what discipleship actually means. There are two qualifying words that Jesus gives here which serves as his description of discipleship. What is discipleship according to Jesus? There are two words here that he uses to describe it. Can you locate the two participles here? A participle is an action that is used as an adjective. And there are two participles that tell us what Jesus means by making disciples. Baptizing and teaching. Christ views discipleship as baptizing and teaching. And once again, that may not seem powerful to you. But that's because we fail to understand the significance of each of those words. Baptizing and teaching, rightly understood, will fix the world. So let's look at each of those and make sure we understand exactly the significance of them. He says, make disciples, baptizing them. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is by far the most misunderstood aspect of the Great Commission. It is so much more than just the act of Christian baptism. If you view baptism as merely an individualistic act, as my individual statement that I am making, then you will not understand the significance of what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus talks about baptizing the nations, he is talking about building his church throughout the whole world. Baptism is the initiation right into Christ's holy institution on earth, which is the church. We will see baptism very prominent in the book of Acts because the book of Acts is detailing the foundation and formation of the institution that is the church. Who are the people of God on earth? They are those holy, set apart people of God playing offense in this world. We are the members of his church. That's who we are. The church is his institution, his organization, his culture, his society, his nation, his alternative to all cultures, all nations, all institutions on the earth is his church. Okay, well, who are the members of the church? The baptized. Baptism at its core is entrance into the church, just as circumcision at its core was the initiation ritual into Old Testament Israel. So baptism serves as the initiation ritual into the New Testament church. So when Jesus says, tell, when Jesus tells them to baptize the nations, he is telling them, go build my church throughout all the nations. Now if that's what he's saying here, If this is much more than my individual act of getting baptized, if he is talking about building something, do you now understand how powerful this statement is? 
If making disciples means building a global institution throughout this world whose purpose is to transform the world, now we're talking about something powerful. In fact, Jesus explicitly says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Again, that's a statement of offense, not defense. The church is storming the gates of hell and those gates will not be able to withstand that storm. So you by yourself are not powerful enough to fix the world, okay? Nor is this unorganized, nebulous, organic, disconnected collection of people powerful enough to fix the world. But the church, a global corporate institution that transcends every culture on earth of which you are a tiny yet significant part of, has proven and will continue to prove to be the greatest redeeming force on the planet. Nothing has changed the world and nothing will change the world like the church of Jesus Christ. So baptizing is the building of the members of this institution. Now let's consider the second participle. To discipleship. Second description. He says baptizing and teaching. Once again. We fail to realize the significance of what Jesus is saying here. If you imagine teaching as merely cognitive education. Then it misses the point. Typically when we think about discipleship, we imagine taking someone who doesn't know a lot about Christian faith and teaching them information about the Christian faith. So in this way, discipleship is essentially a Bible and doctrine information download. Now I do not in any way minimize the importance of doctrinal teaching, of catechisms, of systematic theology is very important to discipleship. Just not as an end in itself, but as a mean to a far greater end. And that greater end is explicit in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It does not say teaching them to understand all that I have commanded. It says teaching them to observe All I have commanded. If Christian discipleship only teaches about Jesus without teaching us to obey Jesus, then it is not Christian discipleship. To put it more strongly, if teaching only remains in the head and doesn't overflow into the life, then that teaching is useless. This is very important for our tradition in particular, people. The Reformed Church is notoriously filled with a lot of people who know a lot of stuff and do very little. If you know a lot about Jesus, but you do not obey Jesus, then you know nothing of Jesus. Christ says, teaching them to obey, to observe all that I have commanded. Now, do you see the power of that? There is zero power in people who know a lot about Jesus. In fact, Satan knows more about Jesus than anyone in this room. 
But there is unmatched transformative power in a community of people obeying Jesus in the world around them. Now, what's intimidating when Jesus says teaching them to observe all that I have commanded is he commanded a lot. And we need to constantly learn all that Jesus said and constantly imagine what it would look like to obey these things. But I'm going to make it very simple for you because Jesus made it very simple for you. What does it look like to observe, to obey all that I have commanded? Well, in one conversation he was asked, what is the greatest commandment that you have? If you could tell us, Jesus, to obey one thing, One thing, just sum it up for us, Jesus. You've said a lot. Tell us one thing. What would that be? His response was twofold. And that response sums up all of his commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a vertical calling. You are to love God with every fiber of your being. And that is a horizontal calling. You are to love your neighbor with the same devotion that you love yourself. That is what it means to obey Jesus. If he says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. If you want to just sum that up. It is this Christian discipleship is teaching people to love God ultimately and love neighbor as themselves. And if you're wondering more details, what does that mean? We're having a conference on it in two weeks. You should come. So summing it up, the power of the Great Commission. A universal, global, holy institution called the church. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Obeying Christ's command to love God and neighbor. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded can and will transform the world. More specifically, a local church, TCPC, in a particular community, the bluegrass, obeying Christ's command to love God and neighbor can and will transform that community. If you still don't believe me, then here's a question I have for you. Who are you in this passage? There's another common way that we always misunderstand or misinterpret the Great Commission. Yes, it is right to view yourselves from the perspective of the apostles getting commissioned by Jesus to go and make disciples of the nations. It's a very appropriate application. It's one I'm going to make here in a minute. It's it's right to teach it that way. But there is another important interpretation to the passage that you really do need to understand. There are three three spoken of here. There's Jesus who's giving the command. There's the apostles that are receiving the command. And then there are the nations that are recipients of it. What if you're the nations? In other words, what if the Great Commission worked and is working? And we ourselves are the very proof of that. When Jesus said this to the apostles, this nation and culture was unknown, and certainly you were unknown and unborn. Yet here we are 2,000 years later, and the command to go make disciples seems to be working. And here's the greater point. If it worked for you, why can't it work for your neighbor? 
if it works for us, then why can it not work for this community? The answer, of course, is that it can and it will. It's so important, it is so important to see that obedience to the commission cannot fail. Because when you view it that way, then it simply becomes an issue of obedience. Not effectiveness. The commission is famously bookended by two promises. All authority is mine and I am with you always. If those two things are true, that Jesus has authority over everything and Jesus is with you always, then it means obedience to the commission will always prove successful. So if it's not working, if it's not turning lives and communities upside down, then it's not an issue with the strategy, but with obedience to the strategy. So by way of application, I want us to humbly and sincerely ask whether you individually and us corporately are in obedience to the command of Jesus to go and make disciples. The way to answer that is by looking at whether the world around us is being turned upside down because we are on offense, not defense. So let me come at it this way. If TCPC were to be gone tomorrow, would the bluegrass actually feel it? I know you would feel it because you love this place and this is your family and this is your community and we all love this. I'm asking whether our city would feel it. If the doors shut tomorrow, would the bluegrass become worse? Would it be obvious that an offensive and strategic enemy of darkness has shut its doors? Would fewer conversions be taking place? Would more injustice be taking place? Would the poor and the outcast be less cared for? Would love and mercy be on the decline and hatred and evil be on the rise? Would the, would the bluegrass be worse if TCPC ended tomorrow? This is how you know whether a church is obeying Jesus. And do you know how to discern that corporate evaluation? Have the courage for every member of TCPC to ask the same question on an individual level. If you were to move tomorrow, would your neighborhood feel it? Would your neighborhood get worse if you left the neighborhood? <laughs> would less people be hearing the gospel? Would people miss the hospitality of your home? Would neighbors in need miss your care? Would the harmful and destructive be thankful that you left? Or would your neighborhood just go on business as usual? The answer to that individual question will provide the answer to the corporate question of whether the bluegrass would feel the loss of TCPC. And brothers and sisters, I'm just going to speak candidly here. I think we do have some repenting to do. It's okay. Jesus loves us. His grace is sufficient. His love for you is not dependent upon your fidelity to the Great Commission... But I think it's time we obey Jesus. 
I think we need to repent of our disobedience to his command to go and recommit ourselves again to going. Not on a mission trip, but next door. And your leadership is here to help you with that. In two weeks, we are hosting a conference on this. I want you to be there. I really do. I always want you to be at the Good and Blue Ash Conference. I really want you at this one. Because it is going to offer important training on where we're going as a church. And then I would love for you to commit to journey with us through the book of Acts. As we watch the church turn the world upside down in their obedience to Jesus. Jesus is true. Jesus is gracious. Therefore, Jesus is to be obeyed. How do we obey Jesus? Make disciples. Go. Baptizing. Teaching. Let me pray that we would obey. Lord, make us a church like this, and may it begin with me. I pray that if my family were to move out of Heartland tomorrow, I pray that we had lived our lives in such that our neighborhood would be completely different. I pray that we become a church such that if we were to shut our doors, Lexington would be so much worse because of it. May we be faithful to your command to go. In Jesus' name, amen.